All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation. If you don't know where that, Bible, that book is, uh, just keep turning until you get to the very back of your Bible and then just open it and you'll be in the book of Revelation. It's the very last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible today and, and you would like to have a copy of it to, to follow along with us, uh, raise your hand. One of our ushers would be happy to bring you a Bible. I'm not going to have the verses on the screen this morning, so uh, either pull out your phone, your Bible app, or, or raise your hand and, and get a copy of the Bible. And let me just encourage you, let's bring our Bibles to church. Amen? Amen. I know that's kind of an old school thing to say, but I'm kind of an old school preacher, so let's bring our Bibles to church. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of our Bibles home as a gift to you. We believe every Christian needs a copy of the Word of God for themselves, okay? The book of Revelation is where we're going to start this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. It truly is your revelation uh, to us. Lord, without your Word, we would be lost, we would be in darkness, we would be hopeless and helpless. Lord, but because you have spoken, because you have revealed yourself to us, Lord, we're not stumbling around in the darkness trying to figure out who you are. You have shown us perfectly and clearly, even in the Word made flesh, your Son, Jesus Christ, you have shown us who you are and that we can now know you and enter into a, a relationship with you through repentance and faith. Lord, as we spend time in your Word today, I pray that you would bring illumination to this word that you have spoken, that you would bring understanding to our hearts and understanding to our minds, Lord, that you would uh, make it clear for us what it is that you're saying to each one of us today, and that you would help us to live it out, to walk it out, not just being hearers of your word, deceiving ourselves, Lord, but that we would put it into practice, that we would be doers of your word. Lord, we don't want to be a bunch of hypocrites that, that claim one thing and do another, but by the power of your spirit, help us to be the people that you have called us to be. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. I want to start by uh, a little exercise this morning, an exercise of fill in the blank, okay? The blank you're going to fill in is this, God is blank. What? God is? God is? All right, I want you to think about that. God is? I said think. Some of you can't think without talking, which is funny. But God is, okay, okay, great, all right. Now, it is my suspicion that when you saw this blank, the vast majority of you filled it in with the word love. God is love. How many of you would say that, that was me? That's what I thought of this morning, God is love, okay? I bet uh, the, the second largest group would have been people that said God is good, God is good. And some of you even said all the time, because we have that little phrase that we say, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Now, maybe you filled it in with something else. I, I don't know. There are many things that we could fill in that blank. Faithful? Well, I didn't ask you to fill them all in. I just said, <laughs> I just said there are many things we could fill in. If we started doing that, we would be here literally all day because we could have never exhaust uh, talking about who God is and what God is. Now, there are two problems with, with, with this. 
especially when we're talking about God is love and God is good, because I think that's probably where the vast majority of us fell. And again, there's two problems with this. Yes, God is love. Yes, God is good. That is not one of the problems. But the first problem is that we don't know what love is and we don't know what good is. That's the first problem. How do you define love? Where do we draw our definition of love? Where does it come from? Yes, God is love, but what is love? The same is, is equally can be said about good, the word good. Yes, God is good. Unquestionably, God is good. But what is good? How do you define good? You see, what we do is we often define God by our own definition of love and our own definition of good. Now, God has revealed himself to us. God has told us. God has showed himself told us that he is love and he is good. But for us to truly understand what love is and what good is, the good and the love that God is talking about, we have to look at what he means by love and good and not by whatever definition we would import and, and bring into those words. Because when we import our own definition of love and good, we make God to be someone that he is not. And so, for example, the, the question often arises, I don't know if you've ever heard this asked before, but how could a good and loving God send anyone to hell? Have you ever heard that question? The problem with that question is that it presupposes a definition of love and good that is foreign to the God of the Bible. Because if you truly understood love and you truly understood goodness, in fact, the question would be opposite. How could a good and loving God allow any of us into heaven would be the true question. If you truly understood goodness, if you truly understood the love of God, the question would be the opposite. That's the first problem. We don't know what love is. We don't know what good is. The second problem is that God is love and God is good are not the primary uh, ways that God has revealed himself to us in his word. There is a primary way that God has chosen to reveal himself to the world and to humanity. Yes, his love and his goodness are a part of that. But the primary way is another word. And I don't know if I heard that word this morning. And if I did hear it, I didn't hear it very loudly. And so let's go to the book of Revelation this morning. Some of you got all excited when I said Revelation. You thought, ooh, wow, we're going to look at the end of the world. No, not quite. Sorry. So I know. I'm sorry to disappoint you. You thought we we're going to talk about Armageddon and the world coming to an end. Not today. Revelation chapter 4. Now, as I, as I studied this and prepared to bring you this message today, I, I, I really struggled with where to start in Revelation 4. And so, 
we're going to start at the beginning. Because to understand what it is that we actually want to get to later on in this chapter, we really need the context. And so the book of Revelation is, is actually, why don't you, I'm getting myself into trouble now. Why don't you go back to chapter one, okay? Many people think that the book of Revelation is the revelation of the end of the world. And even I made a little bit of a joke about that this morning. If you read the very first line of the book of Revelation, you find what the revelation is. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation of the end of the world. Not the revelation of everything coming to an end. No, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. What this book is about is, it's about Jesus and who he is. That's what the book is about. And in chapter 4, if you'll flip back over there, it's the, 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 the scene is the throne room of heaven. That's the scene. So John, the apostle, is given this vision, whether he's seeing it in the spirit or caught up, he, you know, it's not clear, but it's a, it's a vision. He's, he's seeing it, whether with his naturalized or spiritualized, we don't know. Nevertheless, Jesus tells him to write down the things that he sees. And so that's the book that we have here. And so one of his visions is of the throne room in heaven. And so John says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking said to me, speaking like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. That's quite a striking appearance. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. What is that? What is that? What is that? What is a rainbow that has the appearance of an emerald? Try and picture that in your mind. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, 
they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. These four living creatures described in in ways that's even hard to imagine. It says that day and night as they're around the throne, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They're not gathered around singing love, love, love. They're not gathered around singing good, good, good. No, they're singing holy, holy, holy. These four living creatures are in the midst of a spectacular place. Described here with a sea of glass and and a throne and 24 thrones and elders with crowns and the one seated on the throne looks like Jasper and there's an emerald rainbow. But these four living creatures, it says, are full of eyes. And what their eyes are gazing upon is not the sea of glass. What their eyes are gazing upon is not the emerald rainbow. What their eyes are gazing upon is not the 24 elders. It's not even the throne and the the lightning and the thunder. No, their eyes are fixed on the one who is seated on the throne. And with all of their eyes as they they glimpse and as they they take in the one who is seated on the throne, the only word that can come out of their mouth is the word holy. Holy, holy. And they say it continuously because they get a glimpse of the one who is seated on the throne. The word holy is the the primary way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. In fact, holiness and, and the fact that God is holy It is the essence of who God is. To understand God's love, you have to understand that His love is holy. To understand God's goodness, you have to understand that God is first holy. Every attribute that flows out of God flows out of the fact that God is holy. So His love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His goodness is a holy goodness. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. Which brings us now to our third problem today. We don't understand holiness. We do not understand holiness. 
the only time you're ever like, likely to hear the word holy outside a church in our culture is in front of a four-letter word for excrement that I won't say in the pulpit today. Holy, that's, that's the, the, the primary way that we would hear the word holy in our culture. I contemplated saying the word this morning because it was going to make you really angry. And I wanted to say that all the anger you have because I said that word should actually be directed at the fact that we apply the word holy to that word. I'm not going to say it. Don't worry. Don't worry. But if you need any evidence for just how far our culture has fallen, look no further than the fact that we take holiness, the defining characteristic of Almighty God, and we ascribe it to feces. We call the, the one thing that is the furthest from holiness, that's what we call holy all the time in our culture. There is no fear of God in our society today because there's no understanding of who God is and the fact that God is holy. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The word holy and holiness are used in the Bible, well, the, the King James English translation of the Bible about 650 times. Most of those times talking about God. Love is used about 300 times. Yes, God is love. Yes, God is good. But I will never understand God's love and God's goodness unless I first understand God's holiness. So what is it? What does it mean to be holy? What is holiness? Well, it's actually the most difficult of God's attributes to describe because you can't describe it by comparing it to anything else. Because God alone is truly holy. God alone is truly holy. God alone is the only one who is inherently holy within himself. Now, other things are called holy, even in the Bible. For example, Moses, take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. But what made the ground holy? The presence of God was there. So God can make things holy because he himself is holy. But of course, the things that he ascribes holiness to never compare to the holiness of God. To sinful humanity, holiness is truly a foreign word, a foreign concept. Now, when we think of holy, we might think of things like purity, totally pure. We may think of moral perfection. But perfection, moral perfection, purity, these are really a, a secondary uh, type of definition for the word holy. 
and holiness. When the angels are worshiping God in heaven, they're saying more than purity, purity, purity. So what are they saying as they worship God with this word holy? Well, the primary meaning of the word holy, it comes from a word that means separate. It it literally means to, to cut apart. We would sort of, in our language, use the language of saying that something is a cut above. Have you ever heard that terminology? A cut above. The idea for separate, a cut apart, a cut above, is is at the root of holy. You see, God is altogether separate. He, he He is nothing like His creation. He is is totally separate and and apart from everything that we would even know and understand. God is not like us. We tend to think that God is just like us. That's us making God in our image. God is not like us. God is holy. Holy. God is separate. Another aspect of of God's holiness, it's not just that he's separate, but it's that he is transcendent. High and exalted. so, So far above and beyond where we are. This transcendent glory, this transcendent and supreme and absolute greatness this consuming majesty and exalted loftiness is who God is. He is infinitely above all of His creation. What can be compared to God? What can be compared to God? Infinite in moral perfection, infinite in moral purity, totally separate, not like us at all totally transcendent, above and beyond. And so this is why the, 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 uh, Isaiah the prophet will say, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so far are God's thoughts above our thoughts. Infinitely greater than we are. The word holy calls to attention all that God is. And again, every aspect and characteristic of God is rooted in His holiness. Holy love, holy perfection, holy justice, holy goodness. God's holiness is so blindingly glorious that God told Moses that no one can look upon his face and live. In the scriptures, we see several responses that people have when they encounter a glimpse of the holiness of God. It's instructive for us to look at those this morning. Turn with me to the sort of the premier example of this. It's Isaiah chapter 6. 
Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah gets a glimpse again of the throne room of heaven. He gets a glimpse of what John saw in the book of Revelation. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe, his glory, filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold of the temple shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said... Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah sees the the glory of God, when he sees the throne room, when his eyes behold who God is in his holiness, all he can say is, woe is me, for I am a sinner. I am undone. I am lost. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Woe is me. This is the response of Isaiah. God has a seraphim in verse 6. It says, One of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God sanctified Isaiah, a man of unclean lips, cleansed him so that he could bring us the word of God. But Isaiah is not the only one who has a response like this upon encountering the supreme greatness and the, the otherness, the separateness, the, the high and loftiness, the transcendence of Almighty God. The book of Luke chapter 5, uh, the, the, the disciples are fishing all night and they don't catch anything. We know the story. Jesus comes and calls to them from the, the shore. He says, cast your net on the other side. They cast their net on the other side and they bring in such a, a huge amount of fish that even their boats begin to sink. Verse 8 says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, 
for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In the book of Mark, chapter 4, again, the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is asleep, taking a nap inside the boat, and a great storm arises. The disciples are doing everything they can to keep the boat afloat. The boat is sinking. It gets so bad, they go and they wake up Jesus and they say, Don't you care that we're dying? And Jesus gets up and he says to the storm, Peace, be still. And immediately the wind dies down. The waves cease. The storm obeys Jesus. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 40, 41, it says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? At the beginning of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, as we, if you read a little bit further, it reads when... Uh, Jesus had a, uh, John had a vision of Jesus. In verse 17, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. Isaiah, woe is me. Peter, depart from me. The disciples filled with great fear. John, upon seeing Jesus, falls on his face as though dead. God telling Moses, no one could even look upon my holiness and survive. The, the response is obvious. The response is clear that, that to truly encounter he who is totally separate, he who is totally holy, holiness incarnate, is to fill us with great fear and dread because sinful man is not comfortable in the presence of a holy God and rightfully so. Isaiah, woe is me. You see, God is holy and we are not. God is holy, and we are not. And so because that God is holy and we are not, because not only are we not holy, but we are the opposite of holy, we are sinful, we are rebellious, we go our own way instead of submitting to God, We find ourselves in a slippery position as a people, as, as, a, as the human race. We stand before God sinful, rebellious, condemned. God is holy, and because God is holy, God hates Sin. God hates sin. Sin is an affront to everything that God is. 
Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. The Bible says, God's word says, God's revelation to us is, he hates those things. Hates them. The tragic reality is that that list I just read to you described the United States of America today. Let me read it again. Haughty eyes. Pride. Lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. The blood of the unborn flows in our streets. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among the brothers. This, of course, is not all that God hates. God hates all sin. But here this shows us just a glimpse of, of how God in his holiness responds to that which is not holy. Because God is holy, the Bible says he cannot even be in the presence of sin. His holiness would not allow it. For, for sin to be in the presence of God, would, it would have to be eradicated. It would have to be obliterated. Isaiah 59.2 says that our iniquities have made a separation between us and God. And our sins have hidden his face from us so that he does not even hear our prayers. There's no question about this. If, if you read the Bible, you may think that I'm, I'm preaching some sort of another gospel or something. This is the gospel. God hates sin. Words fail to describe how intensely God's righteous anger burns against sin and sinners. This is unequivocally clear if you will read your Bible. God is not miffed. God is not TO'd. God's not just rubbed the wrong way. Through sin, humanity has declared war on the holy God. We can begin to understand some of God's righteous anger against sin as we too burn with anger against the child abuser. We too burn with anger against the pedophile. We too burn with anger against the rapist and the murderer. But God's anger is not simply reserved to what we would call the big sins. 
Because all sin is an affront to a righteous and holy God. Even what we would call small sins. God hates. Now this is difficult for us to comprehend because we are not holy. This bristling that we feel even now as I talk about God's wrath against sin, it shows just how compromised we really are. Just how sinful we really are and just how holy God is. Because of sin, humanity is lost, blind, dead, damned, doomed, and destined for the eternal conscious torments of hell. Because God is holy. Humanity dead in sin can do nothing in and of ourselves to improve our condition before God. All of our best efforts, all of our good deeds, everything that we would try to do to make ourselves right before God, God declares is as filthy rags to Him. We can do nothing to improve our condition. Without God graciously, mercifully working in our hearts to draw us to Himself, we are totally unable and unwilling to turn to God. We are helpless and hopeless. But God, who is rich in mercy, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, to understand the love of God, you have to understand the holiness of God. If God is not holy, then His love, His love is just like our love, which is to say not, very, not worth a whole lot. Because with undying affection, I will profess my love to my wife. With undying commitment, I will say, until death do us part. At the altar before God and witnesses, I will declare my unending love for her. And then five minutes later, I will also say, I love this cake. This is, this is such a wonderful cake. Our love is so weak and shallow. Our love is so temporary. Not God's love. The depths of God's love are inexhaustible because He is an infinite God. Because He is a holy God. And the good news is that even though we are dead and hopeless and helpless and unwilling and unable... That God became a man. That God who was separate, God who was high and exalted, became a man, was born as a baby in the lowliest of places, not even in a castle, not even in a house, but in a manger, in a stable, in a barn. The transcendent coming close becoming imminent 
John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle. There's not a greater miracle than God becoming a man. We talk about it at Christmas time. It gives us, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings. Jesus wasn't born in a manger so that Hallmark could sell greeting cards. There's something more happening there. He who is high and exalted, taking on our lowly estate, humbling himself. Why? Why? To die in our place for our sin. To live a life in our place, to live a life of righteousness, a life of holiness. Jesus never once sinning. Jesus never once thinking a lustful thought. Jesus never once lying. Jesus never once breaking God's law, but instead living in perfect and full submission to the Father. John declares Jesus the spotless lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Pure, holy. And then Jesus goes to the cross. Willingly, willingly goes to the cross. Why? To take his enemies and to make them his friends. To take the long lost prodigal to adopt them back into the family of God. The cross. The good news is that on the cross, all of God's righteous anger against sin was poured out on Jesus Christ. God's anger against sin poured out on Christ. He who deserved nothing received everything so that I who deserved nothing could receive everything from God. This is why it says in Isaiah chapter 53 that it pleased the Lord to crush him. I want you to know that the cross wasn't just some sort of add-on. It wasn't some sort of, you know, it, it just ended up happening that way. No, the cross was the plan from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, speaking to the serpent. God says that the seed of the woman, that you will bruise his heel, but he will crush, crush your head. The cross. It was necessary. This is the thing that we need to understand. The cross was necessary to redeem us. Without the cross, without Jesus taking what we earned upon himself, the wages of sin is death. He took it upon himself Without that, we are still dead in our sins. We are still blind by the God of this age. We are still separated from a righteous and holy God. Yet through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, the Bible declares that we are now a new creation. That He took our righteousness which is his filthy rags, he took that upon himself on the tree and now we are clothed in his righteousness. We are declared righteous by a holy God 
if we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You see, to understand the gospel fully, to fully appreciate the work of Christ, we have to understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. The cross was necessary. Jesus, of course, rose again on the third day. The resurrection in victory. Jesus is not defeated. Jesus is victorious over every enemy, over every foe. So that now by putting my faith in him, I don't put my faith in some dead guy hanging on a cross. I put my faith on the, in the king of kings who is seated on the throne. I put my faith in the one who has defeated death so that I can even declare, oh death, where is your sting? Victorious through Christ. And this salvation that he gives, it's all of grace. It's all of mercy. We don't earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. But he gives it to all who would repent and have faith in his name. The people on the day of Pentecost, the Jews on the day of Pentecost, they, they, they got a glimpse of this. When Peter was preaching on that day, Peter was preaching and he preached to the crowd and he said, you killed Jesus, the anointed one. You killed the Messiah. They understood it in that moment that they stood eternally condemned before a righteous and a holy God. They had killed the Son of God. So they said to Peter, they said, brothers, what must we do? What can be done? What can we do? Is there any hope for us? That same question lies before all of us today, where we find ourselves. I don't know, are you a part of God's family or are you not? But the question is, what can we do? And the same answer that Peter gave to that crowd that day is the same answer that I give to you. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and put your faith in him. He is your only hope to be saved before a righteous and holy God. Jesus came to go to the cross. That is why he came. Jesus didn't come to help you find meaning in life. Jesus didn't come to help you with your low self-esteem. In fact, all of you, your self-esteem is probably too high. I'll just tell you that right now. I'm not worried about your self-esteem. I'm worried about your soul. The Bible says, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Jesus didn't come to help you find fulfillment at work. Jesus didn't come to help you love yourself. Jesus came to die, to reconcile you, sinner, to a holy and righteous God. And Jesus accomplished his mission. On the cross, Jesus declares, it is finished. There's not another price to be paid. There's not a sacri another sacrifice that needs to be made. This is the good news. This is the glorious gospel. Unfortunately, today, you'll, you'll very rarely hear this message preached. 
which is why our country is in such a mess today. Because the pulpits are devoid of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I heard a message recently. Oh, man. The preacher said this, and you all know who he is. I'm not going to tell you who he is, but you'll know who he is as soon as I say it. He said, your problem is not that God doesn't accept you. Your problem is that you don't accept yourself. You need to accept yourself, is what this preacher taught. You need to accept yourself. My friend, you don't need to accept yourself. You can't do nothing for yourself. You need to accept Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. This preacher went on to say that God accepts you just as you are. You don't have to change. God accepts you. You're accepted by God. Listen, hear me clearly. The only reason we are accepted by God is because of what Jesus Christ did for us. The only reason we are accepted by God is because of the work of Christ and that we are clothed in his righteousness. Apart from that, I am not accepted by God. Apart from that, I am not approved by God. Apart from that, I am an enemy of God. Where do you find yourself today? Have you accepted the only hope that you have? Have you been reconciled to a holy God? When I was in my 20s, there was a, a saying that went around. It even got printed on a T-shirt. They sold this T-shirts. They sold these T-shirts everywhere. Jesus is my homeboy. Some of you remember that. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy. If you will get a glimpse of God's holiness, it will change everything in your life. We could talk for hours on the implications of what this means. What this means that now God has imputed righteousness to us. What this means that God has now filled us with his spirit who is called the Holy Spirit. We'll spend the next couple weeks walking through some of the implications of what we've laid out this morning. But for us today... Where is the attitude of woe is me? Where is that attitude today? It should cause us to hate the sin that still remains in our lives. The battle against sin, the indwelling sin that's in our mortal bodies, that we should not compromise with it, that we should, like Paul said, put it to death. We should come to the table as we're going to take communion here and I'll invite the worship team and the ushers to get ready. We should come to the table with a sense of awe, with a sense of reverence. God is in this place. We're so casual about the things of God. 
We're so casual about worship. We're so casual about church. We just treat Jesus like he's our homeboy. Or worse, Jesus is my boyfriend. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And unless God, unless you purify me, unless you sanctify me, <laughs> I have no hope. The people out there have no hope. There's no hope in the world apart from Christ. There's no hope in the world. No political party is going to save the world. No vaccine is going to save the world. The world is broken. The world is broken because of sin. The world is broken because we have rebelled against God. And we think that, that we can do anything. We think that, we, that God is somehow just giving us a pass because he loves us. There is no pass. There is no pass. Sin must be paid for. Jesus paid the price for sin. There is no pass. There's no free lunch. Either you are found in Christ with your sins forgiven or you are condemned before a righteous and holy God. This is the only way. This is the only hope for our world. We don't need tweaks. We don't need tips and tricks. We don't need five ways to win at work. We need God to deal with our hearts about sin. <laughs> that he would grant to us a glimpse of his holiness and give us the gift of repentance. Repentance is not a bad word. Repentance begins with being sorrowful and mournful over your sin. That is a good thing. So that we might turn from sin. That means turn from finding our hope in sin. From thinking we will find our satisfaction in sin. And realizing that our only hope and satisfaction is found in the man who hung on the tree and who rose on that third day. God, would you gift us that gift? I don't, I don't have anything left to say. <laughs>